Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 43. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com, joined by Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest this week is Charlie Morris. He spent 17 years as the head of absolute return at HSBC Global Asset Management, managing more than $3 billion in client funds. He's just joined a new asset management firm and also writes for Southbank Research. He's an expert on gold, cryptocurrencies and momentum investing. So we're very excited to have him on the show. Welcome, gentlemen. Morning. Good morning. So, Charlie, tell us a bit about yourself. Well, thank you, Paul. Um, I spent a long time at HSBC with the big boys, uh, managing huge amounts of money. And um, that was very satisfying until I realized it was time to have a new challenge. Um, I recently joined Atlantic House um, Fund Management, and they're a derivative house. They specialize in in, in, in areas of the market which are um, not my traditional expertise. And so it's quite fun at the, in my late 40s to have a new challenge for the final chapter of my, of, of my career. And um, you know, derivatives really are quite interesting because they, they bring something to the table that the cash markets don't. So it's all well and good to have a, a view on where the world's going. But maybe if the derivative market agrees with you, then everyone else agrees with you and there's no, there's no extra bit. But if the derivative market disagrees with you, then you'll know you're truly contrarian and you can really um, get an extra edge. And so I do think in a world where asset prices have done very well and are unlikely to do um, quite so well in the future, it really does open a, a new toolbox and it's a very exciting place to be. So does that mean that your derivatives, um, as one would normally expect, are leveraged or is it um, – how, how does that work in, term of, in terms of leverage? Are you – when you're right, you make lots more money, but you've got the asymmetric risk of, of, of options? Yeah, we tend to think it the other way around. You get a different range of scenarios. So rather than just have a cash view, you know, you think that the price of a share is going to go up or down, there's many more things you can do for it. For example, uh, the FTSE is an index that's diversified and it pays a yield just above 4%. Now, instead of taking the outcome of the FTSE, you can have 8% a year instead. And that will work provided the FTSE stays above about 3,200. So you've got a hell of a lot of leeway um, to swap something that's fixed for something that's floating. I see. And um, yeah, so that's one example. That would be deleveraging. So, not so, you know, I, I can't think of an example in our firm of where we ever use uh, what you'd describe as leverage. Um, another product we have is on the SP, this is not a marketing pitch, by the way, I'm just giving you the concepts. No, no, it's um, interesting. Yeah, we want to know how you work. On the SP 500, for example, we can track the, um, the index as well as Vanguard can, um, you know, with fees that are much higher. But um, we'll outperform by between 1% and 2% a year just because we do what Buffett does, which is sell long-term put options, which are structurally overvalued in the market because people want to have protection. And so, you know, it will follow the fortunes of the S&P 500, um, but will to, to um, you know, in down markets will outperform a little bit. And provided the S&P stays between two and 4,000, which is quite a broad range, um, you're going to get that scenario. Outside of that, you'll get one for one and miss out on the dividends. So, you know, the client knows exactly what to expect. We give them very wide ranges, we're ranges with which to work in and um, and it's very exciting stuff the, the, the new project I have is launching a total return fund very similar to my existing fund the Newscape diversified growth fund which I brought with me um, under contract and um, and that's really a very similar uh, process but, but using all these tools that I never previously had access to Charlie are your clients uh, private clients or institutions or both institutions and of course their clients are private clients so does that mean you can create a tailor-made product. So if a client says, oh, actually, I want to have, you know, downside protection for the next year, but then I want I want to enjoy the upside because I think that's going to be the path for the market. Is that something you can tailor towards their, their needs or do you have set products? 
Um, we, we have we, we, we have some products that we build and we offer to people. We do do bespoke solutions, absolutely. Um, and we have some funds as well. So you could take a, um, a, a high-risk market like Russia that's got a very big dividend yield. Uh, you give up that dividend yield and you could swap it for something else. Because if you get a volatile market with a big yield, you know that, that creates opportunities that yeah. are different. So you could have some capital protection. You might not want full capital protection because assuming you have a bullish view, you might want 20 or 30 percent um, capital preservation. And then in exchange for that, you might cap the upside. So you might get, let's say you think Russia could run by 20 or 30 percent. You could, I'm, I'm, I'm putting that over the air to give an example, but you could have, say, 20 percent capital preservation over the next couple of years um, and accelerated upside, but no more than 50 percent. So you might get you might get to your goal two and a half times quicker but no more thereafter. And there are lots of these sorts of payoffs which are, which are possible, and I just find that fascinating. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, people always ask about the credit risk. Well, everything is backed by, by gills. Um, and, and so you go into a swap contract with a bank, and, um, and, the, and, and you know, the, the, the derivative market has never defaulted in the way that people think it would. Um, so, so I, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty excited about this new area. So we're moving into an area of high volatility from an area of low volatility and it may well be the new norm going forward into next year. Is that a better environment environment for you, or is it just something that you manage within the fund as it as it appears? Well, in the first instance, everyone likes a market to go up. It makes us all look good. Um, but I think that in a choppy market, we can differentiate ourselves because that's where the value added comes through. You know, anyone can sit on on the fangs and and, and look good in hindsight. Absolutely. Um, but 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 it's when you haven't got that kind of uh, momentum jockey trade, which I, I suspect we haven't got going forward. Um, that's when you can provide different outcomes. Momentum jockey, I like that. I've not heard that expression before. Well, I think they used to call it a um, a stock jockey, but but it's quite <laughs> right. clear that the the um, the, the, the momentum trade, funnily enough, the momentum trade in the US hasn't actually been what you would classically describe as an efficient momentum trade. It's been a, it's been a large cap growth scenario, very much like the late 90s, um, where the biggest stocks have done the best. And that's, 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 that's not something that happens too often. Normally, the big stocks would expect to lag a little bit. Um, but this time, the momentum effect has actually been much stronger in emerging markets and in Europe than it has been in the United States. Um, it, it, it's, it's a strange one, but it's true. I'm just going to coin the phrase volley dollies, which I've just invented. That's fantastic. <laughs> volley dollies. Is that going to be in your weekly, Tim? It might be. It might be. <laughs> Love it. So what do you make of the current the current market volatility here? Do, do you actually uh, steer away from making predictions or do you, do you have like your own views? I see you've actually made some very good calls, um, you know, about the the way the market was going to go up after the Trump administration got in. And um, and so you, you clearly have some some strong opinions, some good opinions. Do you have any strong opinions right now? Uh, of course, one has opinions. But the older you get, the longer you spend this game, you try to get rid of them. You try to. <laughs> Um, to be prepared for a range of outcomes rather than um, it have the arrogance to think you're always right. So that's probably the most useful thing I've learned in 20 years in this business. But of course, I've got an opinion. Um, you know, the, the gap between American equities and the rest of the world is very stretched. You know, if you go back on 50 years of data, you, you know, you, you've got a gap that's about 40% wide. Um, so that, that's, that's pretty hefty. You've also got a big gap between value and growth. Um, I kind of think we're going into a year 2000 scenario. And, and that is the value stocks probably don't do that badly. Some will do terribly, obviously, but, but as a group, they might be all right. Um, and growth stocks start to suffer. And that would tie in with a peak real interest rate environment, which we may well have seen. So you can see that with gold rallying over the last few weeks, 
Um, that may follow through if we are at peak real interest rates. Um, and we also see value outperform growth. So I think these are big changes for, for, for portfolios that have done well over the last five years. They might find they're in trouble for the next few. Charlie, you've, you've coined one of the best phrases about gold that I, I can remember. Would you care to share that with our listeners? Your definition uh, of what gold is? Oh, oh, the bond market one. Yeah, that's the one. Okay, so so I I created a model. By the way, I'm about to write a, a free Atlas Pulse, atlaspulse.com um, update shortly, which I haven't done for over a year, but I will do that soon. And, and for that, I coined this phrase to describe how you could treat gold as a bond. Um, and if you do model gold as a bond, what kind of bond is it? Well, it has zero coupon. That's that's pretty obvious because it pays no dividend. Um, the second thing is it will be inflation linked over the long term. I think we most of us who understand gold would, would agree with that. It's credit risk free because it's a precious metal that doesn't rust. Um, it's got a long duration, so we have a long time horizon when we think about the gold market. And uh, all good bonds are issued by someone. In the case of gold, it was issued by God. And so you put all those together. And, and you kind of realize that gold is a, a, a zero-coupon 20-year tip, imagining that the American government is risk-free, which, which in, uh, at times is true, perhaps is not true all the time. Follow that. And it, and it looks good as bling, I suppose, as well. <laughs> Which is the most important point of all? So, Tim, what's your focus for this week? What what have you what have you seen that's uh, that's that's caught your eye in the markets? Um, it's it's difficult to, to to single out any one one point. Uh, I, I came across an excellent um, uh, interview with a guy called Morgan Housel, which we can we can talk about more at the end because that'll probably be one of my picks for later, but. What, what was particular? Does that name ring a bell with you guys, Morgan Housel in the States? You've mentioned them before. Are you familiar with Morgan, uh, Charlie? No. Um, but he's, he's, he's well, well, well worth it. But we can say, put a link in the, uh, in the show notes later. But he, he's having a chat with, with, with um, a young lady, and uh, this, is, this, this I came across quite recently. So what, what he's doing and what I've started to do, I think and now there's, there's quite an overlap. What he's basically saying is he, he no longer, I mean, this is a guy who used to write for the Wall Street Journal uh, and for Motley Fool. And I'm not sure if he's in fund management or not, but he's certainly a, let's say, a, a commentator on markets and a very good one. And one thing he said is that he, he, bet, he although he spends a lot of time doing research and, and reading and, and also writing, he doesn't read much, if any, anything by way of market commentary anymore. Instead, he reads... I suppose you could call it laterally. He reads around stuff. He reads history. He reads psychology. He reads sociology, uh, behavioral economics, behavioral psychology, all these kind of things. And that's that's kind of the direction that I've I've been going in increasingly for the last few years. I think I've come to the slow realization that most financial media is nonsense. It has no inherent value. Whereas if you adopt this kind of, I think what Charlie Munger would call a lattice work approach, Ultimately, the business of investing is is a human is a human business. It's it's so anything that's relevant to human beings is relevant, either directly or indirectly to the to the nature of markets. And if you accept the central premise that financial most financial commentary is basically a waste of time, uh, and not everyone's necessarily on the same side of that argument, I would accept that. But if you accept that thesis, then it actually has more value. To read around stuff. So the, the the piece with Morgan Housel is great. The other person who's done a really good job, I think, of sort of ex- examining, discussing, riffing on the topic of narrative, is a guy called Ben Hunt, um, who who now writes a, or works for a business called Epsilon, 
uh, an Epsilon Theory is the name of his his output, if you like, which you can that you can subscribe, but it's also a, a free source. So all I'm saying is, in a, in a very roundabout way, I'm aware of kind of what's going down in markets, but I'm I'm increasingly interested by the narratives that accompany well, what I think at the moment I would describe as basically the the, the interest rate super tanker. Is in the is in the early stage of changing course, and I think there are all kinds of ramifications that are, arise from that. The interest rate super tanker is changing course. That's a, that's a call. Do you think it's they're changing too slowly, and that's why gold? I mean, gold's really taken off in the last you know few days. And well, I I'd I, I put the ball straight back into Charlie's <laughs> Charlie's court here, but it, I suppose it. And this is also a, a, a fundamental debate. Which, which, which rates are we talking about? Are we talking about the rates that are notionally set by the market? Uh, for example, relatively short-term uh, bond yields have just exploded higher in the US Treasury market over the last couple of years. Or are we talking about the rates that are set by the central banks? Uh, the, the thing that uh, I think the, the single biggest question debate that we're facing now and for the foreseeable future is, is there a risk that central banks have already overextended themselves and are now in, this, in the early stages, then the market is waking up to this. The market is waking up to the fact that central banks have now lost control of the market themselves. So I think the way Ben Hunt has described this is, is that um, we, we're moving from, a let's say, a decade when everyone kind of bought into the idea that central banks were in control and knew what they were doing. And now we're maybe in the early stages of an environment where at least this is a narrative, if it's not the narrative, where central banks have lost the plot. And they're now struggling to catch up, but they may already have lost it at a level where, you know, we, we're, we're sort of hearing the, the, the clip clop of, of sort of bond market vigilante horses hooves uh, as, as they ride back into town. I believe they've been fooled. We've been, well, they've been fooled by randomness. The illusion of control that they've made the markets go higher. And whilst that is difficult to prove and doesn't sound logically correct, I think you'll see it happen as the market goes down. Now, I I believe that the last sort of man standing in the equity sort of global bull run was the S&P and the NASDAQ. And we've seen both of those turn down in short order, which was, again, an expectation that we had um, over the, you know, it's taken a while for it to fall into line. One can never say exactly when it's going to happen but it's it has happened and it's been a fact that the other markets have been have already topped out so the dax it was fantastic topping formation very clear that's already gone through we all know about italy and the other peripheral um you know european equity markets and, and what's been going on there so it's slowly but surely been turning and the signs have been getting more and more aggressive, and and this these last couple of weeks have been in, indicative of a repricing of risk. And the markets are either at the point of a major top here, and by major I mean multi-year, you know, downside, or we could get one last go. I think I don't, I don't know. Charlie said something very clever earlier on by saying you shouldn't really try and predict the market. And I think he's absolutely right. But certain things can give you a, um, a, a kind of inkling as to what's going to happen next. And I, I shouldn't be influenced by this, but I saw an economist 
on the on the TV who I used to work with, and I'm, he shall remain nameless, but he's just called the top of the market. And I, in my experience, he's never did, called. Did the, he do? Did he do that um, explicitly or inadvertently? No, explicitly, like. explicitly. Yeah. And I, he's never been right before. So, <laughs> I, I, so either, so <laughs> so either he's going to be right on this occasion, which will be possible but unlikely, or we're going to go in for one more. One yeah, more move contra- high. It's a, it's a contraindicator. So that's the that's the only thing that's niggling me in the background. But otherwise, everything seems to be kind of falling into line pretty perfectly uh, for this this kind of major top. Um, you know, the the Nasdaqs, the Fang, the Fang stocks are starting to go down in no short order. The technicals are looking, uh, you know, pretty conclusive for topping formations. Um, and as Charlie said about the differential between the U.S. markets and the rest of the world, it's it's it, that can close very very quickly. So um, we're in very interesting times, and it's to have a fund that's involved in the volatility of that is seems to be ver- you know very well placed for where we are now because I think there's going to be a lot going forward. Yeah, can I add a few words on 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 the market if you don't mind? Yeah, please do. You know, one of my observations over looking at uh, markets over long periods of time. Is whatever's doing, you know, there, there are different kinds of, of bear markets. You know, some are created by bubbles, some are created by um, some sort of economic downturn. And, and what you normally find is whatever is the worst performing area of relative strength tends to be a bigger problem than everyone realizes beforehand. Mm. And you saw this very clearly in the Asian crisis, where between 94 and 97, where markets were happily rising, including Asian markets in most cases. And then, you know, places like Thailand and Indonesia broke. Um, when the S&P carried on rising and it ended up in the in, in the Asian crisis. We saw that again with the, you know, with the financials um, um, 10 years ago. And, and, and now it's China. You know, the, the, the elephant in the room is this terrible Chinese stock market, um, which, which is dying. And of course, we don't know much about China. We think we do, but we don't. Um, there's, there are strange things happening. And it's and it's and those strange things are in the cash market. You know, after many years, I figured out that, that you know, investing, uh, understanding investment is relatively not saying being good at it is not easy, but understanding it's pretty easy after after you've done the hard work. And, you know, bonds to understand what commodities, bonds and and equities are really isn't very difficult at all. What's really difficult is the cash market. The simplest investment of all, which is cash, is the most complex by far. And I imagine that something funny in China is happening because um, that's where the governments intervene, of course. And, and, and I think there's something funny happening in China to do with to do with shadow lending that we that we're not quite familiar with, and um, and that might come to to, to, to roost. And on top of that, because people know there's some sort of problem, um, they've been piling into to U.S. stocks, which have now um, gone to high prices and are, are rolling over with weakening breath, as you say. And, and so you've got a bubble and you've got an economic crisis. To, to make this absolutely perfect, um, you would need to add an energy crisis to the mix as well. And, um, uh, you know, so, so in the short term, that could be a, a, obviously a falling a falling oil price means low demand. So that's that's what you would normally expect. But to make it a proper one like 08, you'd want to see a spike, which would truly squeeze the economy everywhere. Um, so, so I do think we're going into a strange old world. And it, it could be that emerging market you know, oil markets might be quite interesting. Non-oil markets might be, but might be quite troubled, and um, and many re- reiterations thereof. So, um, you know, I, I think how you described it makes a lot of sense to me. But um, trying to understand what kind of bear market unfolds is always, you know, really is I suppose the big question right now. Interestingly, we're not seeing much distress in in developed market credit at the moment. You'd expect to have seen more, but we haven't seen that much. Some, but not much. 
not seeing a tremendous amount of strength in Deutsche Bank share price, mind you, but that, that's been the case for as long as anyone can remember. That's that's probably something slightly different. And of course, there's a European crisis as well. I forgot to mention that, but that's kind of obvious, isn't it? We, we know about that one. It, it's the, the lack of movement in all the, the bank share prices that, that, that worry me. I mean, the, again, they, they, they're either in downward trends or just treading water. And given that the rest of the market has rallied so aggressively, um, even emerging markets, it's that's that's to me a, a massive red flag as to what's going on here. And so, th- the simple question is: if they can't rally while the markets are going up, what's going to happen when the markets go down? And what will be the next steps? And how will the governments be able to to counteract the? Uh, what policy can they bring in to counteract these downward moves? And if they're already heavily indebted, then there's going to be a bun fight for selling your se- selling your bonds, really, um, which is going to spike yield. So it's it's it, and then that self perpetuates. So we really are on the edge of something that could be quite dangerous, um, and in some ways, an existential risk for you know certain projects like the euro. Um, I don't know what your view is on that. Um, I guess it it adds to the argument for for holding uh, assets like gold, perhaps even cryptocurrencies to as a protection. Just to pick up on that last bit, I just came back from Denver, where I where I gave a talk at the Denver Gold Forum on um, on gold versus Bitcoin. It is a subject I've quite enjoyed writing about over the last few years. And um, you know my 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 conclusion is that that Bitcoin is very much gold on the supply side in terms of the number of Bitcoins and the rate at which they'll come. It's very similar to the amount of gold that will come out of the ground over the next 100 years. And, and indeed, that was by design. So there's no great surprise that gold on the supply side is very similar to Bitcoin or, or vice versa. But on the demand side, they're completely different. You know, if, if um, 10 million millennials go and buy gold um, because someone tells them it's going up, what you'll see is a small rise in the gold price, you know, possibly 20% or something like that. Um, if you're really lucky to get maybe 100 million millennials, maybe you'll get the gold up price up 50%, but you're not going to get it up um, 100 times, uh, which is what happens when they go and buy Bitcoin. And so the gold, the gold dynamic and the, and the Bitcoin dynamic on the demand side are completely different. Gold is really driven fundamentally by, by inflation and real interest rates, well, inflation over the long term, real interest rates over the medium term and speculation over the short term. Whereas, whereas Bitcoin really is driven by the size of its network. So if everyone starts to use it, it becomes very, very um, valuable. So Bitcoin is, is more like Netflix or, um, or so not Netflix, uh, Facebook or, you know, um, one of these Spotify, um, the social network, Instagram, etc. It's one of those sorts of things. And the more people that use the likes of Twitter, the more valuable it becomes exponentially. And, um, and so I see Bitcoin fundamentally as a growth stock. And, and my thesis is that that if you want to have a, a good portfolio, they own some growth and some gold, not just one. Because if you look back for the last 20 years, for example, gold is roughly a four-bagger, tech is roughly a five-bagger. But if you rebalance those two each year, you ended up with a six-bagger. Uh, and that's because you have um, uncorrelated assets that behave fundamentally differently. Think about this tech cycle that didn't really get going until 2011, more or less on the day that the gold price peaked. So if you were clever enough to buy the Nasdaq with your $1,900 ounce in, in, in late 2011, that was the perfect trade of this cycle. Um, and it probably wasn't so right to, to have switched much before then. 
And, um, and, and again, back in March 2000, uh, the Nasdaq troughed, uh, sorry, the Nasdaq peaked very much at the same time as the gold troughed, um, certainly in relative terms to the, to the stock market. And so you do have these two opposite uh, instruments. So I, I wouldn't put gold and Bitcoin into the same camp as, as similar assets. I'd say they're opposite assets. And if you don't like the system, then it's great to own both because they're fundamentally um, ought to be uncorrelated over the long term. Oh, that's it. that's really interesting. I've never heard that that view before. I've I've kind of lumped them either together or make a choice of of one or the other. But I didn't think of them as being uncorrelated uncor- like that. Um, but uh, I've always I've been in. I'm more interested in Bitcoin in terms of its payment network rather than its actual value. In in, in other words, the ability for say the Italians to use the Bitcoin network to you know send their money out of the eurozone if the euro starts to collapse is a much more interesting use of the of bitcoin rather than actually holding it itself for um compared to gold so it, i guess it it doesn't it's not just a question of what asset you choose it's when you choose it when it becomes valuable in that talk and i i, I described gold versus bitcoin i i, I covered off four economic scenarios. Uh, one was growth. In, in a growth environment, obviously, we'd expect um, people in Silicon Valley to be very excited and we'd expect Bitcoin to outperform gold. I don't think many people would dispute that. But then the harder scenarios are things like um, socialism or, or high inflation or something like war, um, when there's you know a huge disruption to the, to the mainstream economy. And then under those circumstances, what would you uh, what do you think would 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 be more would be more resilient? And if you th- take the Second World War, imagine if we had um, Bitcoin in those days. You know, I tend to think that um, that the gold would have done a better job. If you take uh, Venezuela or or Zimbabwe, one of these hyperinflation situations. Um, yes, I can see some merit in, in 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 the value of Bitcoin. But more importantly, if we had hyperinflation in the Western world, I still think that gold would be a better bet. Um, the, the Bitcoin because it would have its own inherent stability. Um, socialism um, again, I, I would think that um, you can you can you can you can rely you can be more dependable. Gold is more dependable um, than Bitcoin because, as I said before, it's it, the value of Bitcoin is is proportional to the size of its network. If you try and fight that network, because the authorities they can't ban it. Obviously, they can't. Well, they can't stop it. They can probably try and ban it, but um, they, they can make it difficult to use. And so, if they if they interfere with that network, then that's going to destroy some of the value. That that network of Bitcoin will only be maximised in a growth environment. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And so, therefore, gold is un un un, un um, unaffected by um, the, the, the outer environment. You know, it's, not, it, it's going to have that intrinsic value regardless of what policy might be. So for that reason, I think that in distressed times, I'd be surprised if Bitcoin is a better bet than gold. But I would say have a bit of both. Would you say that Bitcoin is the go-to cryptocurrency? Do you think there's a 2.0 that's, that's a better version or do you think Bitcoin is it? Which should stop there. That was my assumption for the last five or six years that the that better one would come along. That's a sort of AOL school of thought that, that AOL would not be the, the dominant internet company. And that proved out to be true. But, but in this case, you've got network effect. 
And and so long as that network is strong, don't bet against it. I think it's a bit of a mug's game. I'm not saying you can't have a, um, a, a go on the side. Of course you can. But but I think you've got to assume that the current network is a surviving network until prices start to give you evidence otherwise. Um, so so I, and it's, it, in the case of Bitcoin, it's where all the liquidity is. It's the de facto dollar of the um, of the space, and and it takes a hell of a lot to to change that. Um, you call the high energy use a flaw. Well, some people would call that security. So um, you know, I don't want to get into the tech side of it because I don't understand it, and I'll be waffling. But um, but but basically, I look at the economic side of it, and it's abundantly clear that that that, that Bitcoin is the firm leader here. There, there is another. There is another thing I would like to mention, and that is in the likes of Ethereum, what you're building there is not so much a unit of exchange, but but a platform for other um, crypto tokens to come and have some fun. And um, that's really been the rage of the last cycle. Um, but I think in the next cycle, and, and um, the next cycle could be about the tokenization of assets generally. Now, very easy to do with something like a bar of gold, a bit more complex to do with property or a company. Um, but think about this. Think about you have a small company that's currently listed in London on AIM or in Canada, um, uh, and, and at the moment, the people that can look at that company and trade that company have access to that exchange. Well, imagine if you opened up the, the concept of junior assets or any assets um, to the whole world. That's pretty exciting. And I think the legal challenges are being, uh, are being addressed uh, right now. And we will see tokenization of everything. Um, over the next few years. And, and, and at the moment, it looks like Bitcoin is going to be at the heart of that. So there, is two, there are two coins to buy. One is the, is the unit of exchange, which is the, 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 the liquidity of the space, which is, which is Bitcoin. It may be taken over, as you suggest, but, but, but at the moment, that's it. And the other one is the platform that's going to handle all the ICOs. Um, there are some skeptics that it's not going to be Ethereum, um, and it could be something like EOS or Stellar. Um, that is the big opportunity to identify that platform. Um, and I don't know which one it is yet, but we'll still become very obvious when the next bull market begins. Um, a simple momentum tell will, will get you in quickly. So the tokenization, I've never heard that expression before. Have you heard of that, Tim? Uh, no. So, so let me get my head around this. So what you're saying is that we that certain other assets will be broken down into smaller parts and that's how you would buy them? Or have I misunderstood how, how this would work? So you could chop up a painting like Banksy did, but rather than cut it, you just tokenize it. So you have a million, a million electronic tokens which represent its value. Wow! Um, with diamonds, you could do that with, uh, with land, with small businesses, with startups, you know, with anything. And um, and, I, and this is really is you know wild west free market capitalism. I do find it very dull when people like Rubini who who just look at the space. And, and just sort of write it off on, on, on some sort of, you know, view from the 1950s of how the world ought to be. You know, this technology is out of the box. And I, and I would say to people like him, you know, would you bet against the Internet? The Internet has been pretty successful in our industry in trading and, and um, getting char charges down and you know, the number of products up and the data has been is better than ever before. And in retail, it's been successful. In media, it's been successful. It's been so successful in so many areas. And, and would you really bet against it in finance? The, the problem for Nuria Rabin is that having got a reputation for calling the crash, whether that's true or not, that's, that's the reputation he's going to have hanging around his neck for the rest of his life. Because um, I'm, I'm well aware that he's probably one of the most outspoken critics of, of cryptocurrency. But it reminds me, I mean, you, you sort of allude to people who've got a reputation way above what, what, what it, it really ought to be in the real world. The, the classic 
uh, other example of that would be uh, Paul Krugman, who said that the impact of the internet would, in the fullness of time, be no more than the impact of the fax machine. <laughs> you know, just to counter that slightly about, um, you know, perhaps some some criticism of of the uh, the cryptocurrency space, um, there there is a sense that um, for some people, it's they want it to take over the whole banking system, and they kind of judge it on the basis of you you know you could use bitcoin to replace all payments and the problem with that is that you literally can't it the, the system can't work fast enough to deal with all the transactions that are needed to be made it can do something like probably 7 per second which is woefully small compared to what was actually required so you know you can't literally you can't use it in it in the current system um for small payments, you need something else. There's something called the Lightning Network that comes outside of the Bitcoin system to try to deal with kind of micro payments, which are quite cumbersome and expensive to make in the Bitcoin world itself. So if you're dealing with large investments, if you've got to hedge your portfolio of whatever it is and just hold it, then that's that's one thing. Then Bitcoin seems to work. But if you want to use it for small transactions on a day-to-day basis, the actual Bitcoin network doesn't work very well in that space. So it's it's not that there's um, it's not that it isn't revolutionary, which it is, and it's uh, it's it's the Coca Cola of the cryptocurrency world because everybody knows it and it's got the best network. Um, but it's not without its flaws, and and so th- that's why I guess it's it's interesting to see whether there will be something else that that just does a better job that that takes over. I think a great description to call it the AOL. Uh, of the possibly the AOL of the currency um, of of the uh, you know the internet world that's um, that's a great description but what there's no doubt that this space has changed forever and that there will be you've got a coming together of the technology and you've got the coming together of of the network through the internet for something like this it's it's come at a perfect time people we've seen a bubble in it I think you could have a bubble in something and still it has long-term value. If you look at the internet, that's exactly how it worked. We had the bubble in 2000, which exploded. The railways weren't too bad either. Yeah, so th- this does happen with new technology. We, it's been known to happen where you ha- things get overpriced. Have you, have, you, have, you, have, you, have you traveled by train recently, Charlie? <laughs> <laughs> point taken. But but that that's the point, you see. It's, it's with, if you go back to 2000, look at what happened to the internet. You know, it... it you had a natural culling of the the weaker markets, and then um, we move forward. And then you had things like MySpace that were you know predated uh, Facebook and other social networks, and and then now we've got Facebook. And so it it will be interesting to see which is the next step forward. But the the use of smart contracts is fantastic, and that is a very interesting area. I wonder whether the tokenization of products, as you're suggesting, is, is will be tied into. The, the blockchain technology, which clearly is, is revolutionary and will change the way the banking system works in the very near future. There's, there's little doubt about that. I'm, I'm trying to remember who, who, who made this point. It was something I was hearing recently, and there, there, whoever it was, it was a, one of the great and good said that one of the issues was that, that Silicon Valley, well, you've got two, you've, we, we're currently working our way through a kind of big bifurcation between two different types of markets. You've got the market in bits, the digital economy, if you like, and then the market in atoms. And the person in question said that the problem, one of the problems was that, you know, Silicon Valley has this kind of loosely sort of liberal, ostensibly libertarian type focus, which is let, let's just you know, move fast and break things. And that, that, that market in bits 
has been basically unregulated. So they've done whatever they wanted with very little oversight, whereas the market for atoms, for things, for, for, for tangible things, creating tangible things, mining tangible things, moving tangible things around, has been very, very heavily regulated. And I know this has been a concern of yours, Paul, that it now feels as if there's, there's really brewing political pressure that's going to come down really heavily on the, on the economy of bits in terms of regulation and oversight and you know sequestration conceivably so i think there's a lot in the flux a lot in flux now for sure i mean it, it, we we see how a lot of these uh companies for want of a better description we've not really understood what they've been doing with that data it's everything's moved so fast i mean just giving my daughter a phone for her use at school and she's not allowed to she's not allowed a smartphone she's only allowed to use one of the old burner phones the brick phones and you kind of look at how technology's moved in a very short space of time from you know crappy phones that you can barely get the internet on and the most advanced feature is pretty much just text messaging to the phones that we've got today that pretty much track everything and everything we anything that we do where we are and where we are compared to other companies and what we've searched for and what other people have searched for with our age group and and everything else i mean and it's what- like it's like it's like star trek technology that they're like you know communicators and all the other things bundled into one thing they are the godlike godlike powerful stuff i mean it is quite amazing how they kind of know just about everything about what you're going to want or choose next because of your 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 patterns and it's 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 no it's no wonder that the governments have had to sort of like take a step back and say how are we going to deal with this because it's all happened so fast it's taken everybody by surprise um but it like you say it's been a it's been a a great period for these these companies to like the wild west to to enjoy fantastic gains in an unregulated way but when these companies become more powerful than the governments themselves with the amount of data they have it just doesn't it just doesn't sit right it just doesn't sit right that they have that they can know more about citizens than the government does and that's kind of the government's job isn't it to to know about what people are doing the government's be spying on us not the private sector no i agree with that well can i just take take a couple of those points the first you know you started off with the with the the bitcoin as as money i think phase one bitcoin that ended in 2013 at a thousand dollars kind of told us that Bitcoin wasn't money. And it was a bit of a shame that we had this label cryptocurrency because they're obviously not currencies. They're, um, they're something, you know, in behavioral terms, they're, they're a bit more like a commodity, but they're actually their own asset class called digital assets. And it's a, it's a new thing that we should get used to. And so to shake off the currency label, I think is important. They're as useful at buying a cup of coffee as gold is. You can do that, of course, with MasterCard. You can put your gold on a MasterCard with Glint, or you can do a similar thing with Bitcoin and you can go and buy your coffee. The MasterCard network is very, very good at doing that and should continue to do so. So, so I don't think that we should worry too much about that. There's, a, there's another use. And, and, and on the privacy side of life, um, you know, cryptography is, is really how you keep things private. Um, this, 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 these complex uh, bits of mathematics which are very hard to crack um, means that your data is much more safe, safely stored, um, and, and in your control if you um, if you embrace this space. So I do think that, that may well turn out to be one of the strong applications um, for crypto in general, um, because the moment you know we just send unsecure messages all over the place and we have no idea who's got our stuff, and that could all change. Yeah, the 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 sense of of messages being sent through the internet and being 
unsecured. I mean, I, I'm not even sure. I think email is basically unsecured, isn't it? Can people read your emails technically? Probably. Yeah. I don't think any of us have a clue. Yeah, that that's true. It's just we don't. I mean, we, we all use a, an internet service provider. What does the internet service provider see about the data that we're using? What do the phone companies see about the data that we're using and, and the, the sites that we visit, etc.? It's it's it, it's an interesting question. It's something that kind of never really comes up. These latest misdemeanors by Saudi Arabia and by the Russians in Salisbury and, and how in no time and, and the bomber in America in Washington recently with the Democrats and, and, and how incredibly quickly these these hard to solve crimes have been solved um, just because of the footprints left in um, in, in data land. And it's, it's really quite extraordinary how it's happened. It just shows you um, how we really are. Um, unable to to enjoy privacy in this day and age, unless you live a, um, a digital diet life in the Shetland Islands or something. Unless you do that, then then actually people know a lot about us and whatever we do. If you try and do if you try to do something covert and like go to a faraway city and do something terrible and come back again, there is so much evidence. Um, if you left your phone behind, then your phone did nothing for three days. And that's unusual. I mean, Facebook could tell in a second all the users whose phones did nothing for a few days over the over the over the period, um, and, and, and then you know you, you're on CCTV and all these sorts of things. Your footprint is everywhere um, in what we do and how we spend and, and these sorts of things. So, um, so, so privacy, I think, is something that will become a growing theme um, over the next generation. Have either of you seen the, the there was a TV short TV series about I can't remember the name of it but basically the name of the game was that you had to escape the authorities and so what what you did was at a certain time you just went on the run and it was to see how long you could stay on the run for without them catching you and you had to get to a certain place at, at a, you know a, a given time so they gave you a location say within a week or so that you had to get to um, but it was absolutely fascinating how they track people, you know, and it, it was just just amazing. Like you say, it was CCTV. They knew that the um, that the person would probably contact a loved one at some point. This is, um, so that, this is, like, this is like a Bourne film. Yeah, yeah, exactly like a Bourne. It was just fascinating to see how they did it and the attempts that people made to to throw off the the scent of authority and what they were doing to find them. It was just just amazing, and you know. Obviously, you can't go to any train station because you get seen on CCTV. You can't use a cash machine because they they all have cameras in them, so they could see when they were buy, when they were spending money. So it, it, the amount of things they had was so clever, um, you know. They and they worked out through their internet history because then they just take their computer and say, "Oh, he's done some searches of this area," or they went on holiday here, or you know they're most likely to go to this place because they know it from a previous holiday, and then they sort of narrow it down and then find them on on some holiday camp somewhere. It's just just brilliantly done, very very clever so you'd, but you'd, scary you'd, at the same you'd, time. You'd need to go somewhere where society is completely broken down. There's no technology or, or culture, which is okay for me because I live in Camden. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so to change the to change the, the topic slightly, a sort of grinding, grinding, uh, uh, grinding swerve here. I mean, I would imagine that a lot of a lot of individual investors are at the moment sort of quietly or not so quietly freaking out at sort of developments in the market. What apart from just the sort of standard bromides, Charlie, of sort of 
staying for the long run and being patient and all that. What what practical advice would you be giving people who, let's say, might be a, more than a little disconcerted by what's going on, in, particularly in stock markets, but just in markets more generally? Yeah, I think that um, stay diversified is always a, a, a pretty key one. Um, I would I would be light on on the fashionable areas of the market. Um, stick with the value in areas of the market. Um, be cautious of the bond market because it doesn't give you enough return um, for the risk you face. Um, and sprinkle a little bit of gold into the mix. And there's no harm in being patient. Wait to see what uh, what, 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 what comes before you start to re- recognize there are much better opportunities out there. Um, it's a really horrible time. Market tops are always horrible times because it's, it's never obvious. You can just go to cash, but that's not always the answer because sometimes, you know, for example, in Britain, you might worry that the pound goes continues to go down. Personally, I don't think that's a big risk. I think it's quite undervalued, but, uh, but nonetheless, it's possible. And, and if in 2008, you did go to cash, then in purchasing power terms, you know, it wasn't a great call, even though it might have felt like it was. So, the, 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 sorry to interrupt, Johnny. The, the problem with cash at the moment is is also you have this sort of you could call it a tail risk, if you like, but the, you've got this risk of a you know basically a, a shock Corbyn uh, Corbyn Easter mar- hard Marxist government. And I was listening to a, a podcast uh, with uh, James Dellingpole, uh, and the, the guest he had on was was suggesting that she was a, a UKIP economics. Um, spokesman, and she was suggesting that Corbyn may or may not be getting advice from sort of top accountancy firms uh, as to basically how he can go after people's assets. So, you know, there are all, I mean, Brexit is one thing, but but I think actually one, the reason why UK markets are, and Sterling is behaving the way, they are behaving the way they are, is is less to do with Brexit and more to do with people being absolutely terrified of what if we get sort of 1970s redux. Yeah, that's a legitimate fear entirely. Um, the one glimmer of hope there is the Conservative Party, which is, of course, the natural party of government, is in utter turmoil at the moment. And somehow they're a good five to ten points ahead in the polls. So that really tells you how unpopular and how unelectable Corbyn must be. Mm. And that's, that's going up, isn't it? I mean, for him to be behind in the polls with, with the competition he faces, that, that you know, he's done well. But for me, that's not enough. So to the extent that it's possible to protect against, to hedge against, let's call it Corbyn risk, what what measures other than the ones you've already alluded to would 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 you consider, not necessarily recommend, but just consider at a general level, you know, moving assets offshore, you know, moving into, let's say, non, non-sterling currencies, whether that includes gold or crypto or anything else, you know, how far would you would you consider going to try and secure your your personal, you know, your personal savings? Well, you know, to me, I've got my, my house and my pension fund and my family are the most important things. I mean, they can't steal my house, but they can kick me out of it, I suppose. But I don't yeah, see... And they, can, and they can they can go after your pension money as well. Well, of course they can. They, and I'm sure they'll have a good go at that. Um, but I think, as I described, you know, avoid the speculation, diversify and, um, you know, focus on focus on value where you can. Um, you know, I don't, th- I don't think it's easy at the moment. But, but you know, certainly in my fund, if, if I'm allowed to mention that... Of course. Um, you know, I, I basically have a long-term thesis of being uh, roughly split between quality, value, um, um, growth, and gold. At the moment, my growth is virtually zero. I've just got one percent in growth. Um, lots and lots of value, um, a fair amount of quality, and a damn good slug of gold, which has um, been increased over the last month. So that's the biggest position I've got right now. 
And I'm comfortable with that. It's a slightly dull portfolio, but I think it will, it, you know, if value destruction is going to happen around us, then um, then, then just to, to, to be safe is the most important thing. I think it's really stupid to try and make money during bear, bear markets. I think you'll end up being worse off. It's much better just to be patient and to be cautious. With that caveat, is there, do you have any facility to, let's say, try and if not take advantage of or exploit, at least hedge against, let's let's call it a sort of 2008 uh, repeat. In other words, some kind of momentum strategy. Yeah, so in my, in my um, um, in, in, I've got two funds. So one of them's derivative, one of them's non-derivative. In the non-derivative, I've got lots of bars of gold and I've got lots of safe stocks and I've got low low exposure to speculation. Um, in, in, the, in the other fund, there are various risk offs um, um, hedges. Um, some of them are quite long-term in their nature. For example, to be short the Hong Kong dollar against the US dollar if, if, as that one day decouples. Um, there, there would be another one to be um, short euro yen, which is a classic currency pair, but it's got no um, it's got no carry costs, so you know, it doesn't doesn't cost much to have that trade on for long periods of time, um, and that can help you. Um, and there's also some 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 shorts in some some momentum stocks. There's shorts in closed ended companies, um, and and a, a few other sort of exotic things like short credit, short European credit against you know three year U.S. Treasury. I don't want to get into the boring complex stuff because it's it's boring and complex. But um, yes, the, a little bit of of hedge here, there, and everywhere to try and make damn sure that the portfolio um, is resilient. One's not targeting a profit in a bear market, one's targeting stability. I think that's the most important point. So I always like to have the, the you know, low exposure to the areas that could go horribly wrong, if not no exposure, and, um, and, and slightly less hedge than you think you really need, because you're not trying to make every month positive, you're just trying to take the shocks down from, you know, from a horrible number to, to, a, to a you know, slightly sore number. I think that's the objective. So it's a simpler way to manage money. And I think the evidence suggests more effective in the long run. Fantastic. So, Tim, what do you think? Media picks? Uh, why not? Um, the, I, I was early. I'm sorry, I was not early. I was late to this one. Um, I was aware that there was a, you might have seen there was a chap called Joachim Ronneberg, who was one who died uh, during the week. Um, and he was the last hero of Telemark, as they were called. And I'd seen the film, um, the Kirk Douglas film, but I, I hadn't really appreciated just the, the 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 extent of the story, the 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 heroism behind this. So this was basically the 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 fight to to keep the Nazis from from getting a lead on on heavy water and uh, getting a lead in, in building the bottom the atom bomb during the war. And so I, I caught this late uh, via the BBC BBC website. So this is a guy. Let's see if I can find the, the text in question. So. Um, this is just from the BBC story about his, his death. The, man, the men parachuted onto a plateau, skied across country, descended into a ravine and crossed an icy river before using the railway line to get into the plant and set their explosives. Um, after the explosion, the men escaped into neighbouring Sweden by skiing 320 kilometres across Telemark, <laughs> despite being chased by some 3,000 German soldiers. And then with a wry smile, Ronneberg described it as the best skiing weekend I ever had. <laughs> and I thought, yes, now that, now that is a quote. That's brilliant. Sorry, Tim, so I, I missed the name of it. Sorry, could you so just... His, could... Name, his name is Joachim Ronneberg, and he's, he's a Norwegian guy. Uh, clearly a bit of bit of a hero in every sense who who was one of the heroes of telemark so that was one of them and as i sense that charlie may need a bit of help to 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 to, to pluck his media pick out I'll, I'll use another one um because we are the witching season is soon upon us in terms of halloween 
Um, one of my favorite uh, screenwriters is uh, Nigel Neal, who is the guy that wrote Quatermass. And the BBC, uh, BBC Radio 4 did a, a little piece um, called uh, The Road, which is an adaptation of, of a lost uh, teleplay that he did that Nigel Neal wrote in the, I think, the 60s or 70s. Um, so anyone that's got access to iPlayer, um, it's called The Road, um, written by a guy called Toby Hedok. Um, and it's an adaptation of an old Nigel Neal thing. And the, the premise is you've got um, a philosopher and an inventor who are basically investigating reports of a haunting in a wood in the late 18th century. It stars Mark Gatiss, who for fans of horror and uncanny things is, is always reliable. It's on uh, Radio 4. It was on last. It was on yesterday afternoon and it'll be on iPlayer for another three weeks. And it's called The Road. And I think it's the, the perfect Perfect sort of 45 minutes entertainment ahead of Halloween. Is it a radio play or is it a, a radio? It's a radio, radio play. It's a radio play. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, we haven't had one of those before, Tim. That's excellent. Um, Breaking new ground. <laughs> absolutely. Well, my one is a, um, well, I'm going to say a big thank you to Stuart Button for this. It was uh, Operation, it's called Operation Odessa. And it's just a crazy story um, set in the 1990s. Starts out with this uh, Russian guy who's got a nickname of Tarzan, who's working for the mob, moved to Miami, set up a nightclub and had a lot of sort of Russian mob contacts going to his nightclub. But then the story spirals into um, him and another contact trying to hustle the Russian mob um, and the Cali cartel um, in order to to buy a submarine um, for the, it's just it's just crazy because you that had old, that, old, that old chestnut that old chestnut. I mean, it's <laughs> you had you had the breakup of the Soviet Union in the nineties, and just quite how lawless that place was. I don't know. It wasn't clear to me until I saw this documentary, and it's it's a fantastic story, really funny, and a great a great recommendation. So thank you to Stuart Button for that. I really enjoyed it. So that's going to be my one for this week. No well, pressure, mine's Charlie. Mine's going to be a bit depressing, I'm afraid. Um, this is the first time I'm invited off, invited on this show, so um, I, I didn't didn't come prepared. But I'll tell you, I haven't been to cinema for several months because I got a baby daughter. And um, yeah, and so that's a good reason not to go to the cinema, isn't it? But I'll be catching up. Oh, with some... the, the, the films are all crap anyway, Charlie. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. Um, so I, I saw on Netflix recently, and it's quite long, so I watched it in three chunks. Um, the twenty second of July, that harrowing story of the neo Nazi who blew up the, the um, Parliament building in in Oslo, and then went to the to the island where all the children of liberals were. Uh, holidaying and, and 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 I think the death toll was um, was seventy seven people. It's a very I, I sort of I saw it recommended on Netflix. I thought well I don't really want to watch that because it's you know I don't like weirdos and people being killed and stuff. But then but then it was a very very well done documentary um, of 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 what happened um, and it's the power of the survivors. Really, the tale's really told from the perspective of the survivors in the end. And so I do think that you you know you don't you don't come away um, torn apart from watching it. You you think actually that the the world's not quite as awful as um, as we sometimes think of it because because the actions thereafter um, you know are quite strong. So I'm I'm it, it, it's not an, it's not an enjoyable thing to watch necessarily. But, but I would recommend it because it's a, it's a power, very, very powerful story if you're up for that sort of thing. And, and I'll leave you briefly with a book. But I'm a bit behind the curve here, but I'm now reading Ray Dalio's Principles. Oh, and, excellent. Yeah. And, and I'm really enjoying it. And I, and I just ordered his, his, his next one. So, um, which I think, I think they're free on the internet, actually. You've got to print them out. But, but you know, there you go. 
great recommendation. I was wondering about the 22nd of July, so you've convinced me to watch it. So thank you for that, Charlie. And um, that just leaves us to say thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. Obviously, there will be people who want to contact you and they want to know more about your fund. Could you just give us um, the best way to contact you in terms of website or are you on Twitter? Uh, Yeah, at Atlas Pulse. Atlas as in map, Pulse as in blood beat, heartbeat. Fantastic. So at Atlas Pulse. And yeah. uh, if it's possible, if you could just send us links to everything that uh, or anything that you've mentioned, if you send an email to me with it, and I'll share it in the show notes. So make it easier for the listeners to to get in contact with you. Um, it's very boring. And I'm very sorry. But um, I will give you a link. But there is a process whereby we're not allowed to talk and engage with private investors for legal reasons. It's it's nonsense, and, um, and, and, but it is the law, and we're in big trouble if we, if we break it. So I'll give a link, but they have to go through the formal process to demonstrate you're not a private investor, but you're a um, professional investor, and, and then we can engage with you. But if people wanted to talk to you directly, they can do via Twitter. Would that be okay? Via Twitter. If you want yeah. to talk to me as a human being without a regular... Absolutely. Regular, um, you know, ...doing its thing, then they're very welcome to Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Charlie. Really enjoyed your your comments and uh, tokenization. I think is what I've taken away from 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 this week's podcast. What about you, Tim? It's the thought that you might have been doing this without wearing any underpants. <laughs> well, that was. <laughs> We weren't live when I was talking about that. Well, I, I, just, I just thought, what, what is life without a little whimsical indiscretion? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm going to have to explain that now, aren't I? <laughs> so basically, before the podcast started, Charlie, uh, we, we link up on, on uh, Skype. On, on, a, on a pornography pornography channel. <laughs> no, on Skype. And, and Charlie basically said, you know, oh, we're not doing video because he obviously, you know, put a shirt on for a Sunday morning, which is very nice of him, and I had a shave. And I said, "Don't worry about that. I'm, I'm usually just sat here in my underpants," which I'm, which of course, you know, led to Tim's comments. So thank you for that. I don't know whether I should cut all of this out or that's, leave it that's, in. That's never going to make it into the final edit, is it? <laughs> it's never going to make it in. I can't, I can't put that in. Anyway, it's been an absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank you again. Charlie and obviously thank you Tim as always you. and uh, you know hope to have you on back on the show at some point if that's okay with you Charlie love to thank you very much brilliant really enjoyed it thanks again and uh, welcoming all our new subscribers thank you for uh, subscribing we've got a great Twitter group going on and you know obviously Tim's very active on Twitter but it's always interesting to follow Tim and 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 the uh, and the other followers that we've got so thank you so much for listening to the podcast so watch that volatility and we'll catch you next time thank you very much happy halloween happy halloween bye 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 this podcast is for entertainment purposes only please do your own research or contact a professional advisor